think the last time I preached here was like July 29th or something. So hope I remember what I'm doing. So anyway, as we kick off a new school year, um, we also kick off a new sermon series. Uh, the title of this sermon series is Exodus, Saved for Glory. And so today we look at the opening passages of a wonderful book in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. But we must come to understand it's really kind of a continuation of the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis ends with a tiny nation of Israel, just 70 people living in Egypt because of a famine. And now the book of Exodus that we're going to look at this morning picks up about 400 years later after the people of God have entered Egypt. And what we're going to see is that God's promises to Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob have, have come true. Um, the offspring of Abraham have now multiplied and been fruitful. They've become a great nation. And yet we're going to read, with this nation's growth also comes opposition and suffering. If you look at our passage before you, you're going to see that's pretty long. That's like 700 words. And it takes 4 minutes and 24 seconds to read it. Yes, I did. And so instead of reading the entire text at once, we'll take it in small bites. But let's pray first. Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to study this amazing book, the book of Exodus, penned by your faithful servant Moses, uh, kept tried and true over the years for us to, to hold and open here this morning. May your word come alive to us uh, as your spirit works in us. And may we be given eyes to see the truth that you would have us to learn, that we can be all the more better able to love and serve you, we pray. Amen. Well, um, a gentleman named Anthony Salvaggio has written a book on, on this uh, book of Exodus and on Moses. And, and in it, he tells a story about he and his wife going out to see a, a play titled All in the Timing. And it's actually made up of six short comedic sketches. And then one of the sketches was titled In Philadelphia. And in the sketch, one of the characters comes in complaining about his day. He declares that everything has gone wrong for him. And his friend listens and then tells him that he is experiencing these problems because, well, he is in a Philadelphia. His friend uses the phrase in a Philadelphia to describe a day in which everything you try to accomplish seems to go wrong. That phrase stuck with Salvaggio and his wife. And so whenever he or his wife are having one of those days which seemed like nothing was going their way, they would look at each other and one would say, I am in a Philadelphia. <laughs> well, we might call it something else, but we all can easily identify with what it's like to be in a Philadelphia, especially Philadelphias in our lives that never seem to end. You know, at any given time in our church, there are dozens of you who are going through such days. Some of you are grieving over the loss of a family member. Some are, are battling a diagnosis of cancer. Others are struggling to find a good-paying job or a place to live or struggling through a marriage or dealing with unending singleness. One moment you feel like everything is 
in life is meaningful and, and joyful, and then in the next moment you're experiencing life in a Philadelphia. Tell me, how do you respond to long, seemingly hopeless trials? If you're here this morning and you're one who doesn't trust in God, let me ask you, what do you turn to 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 calm you, to bring you peace? I mean, true, lasting peace. And if you are one who trusts in God, how does your hope and how does your trust change when you find yourself in a Philadelphia? Do you feel like he's abandoned you? Do you feel like God hasn't perhaps lived up to his side of the bargain? Do you blame God? Here's why the opening words of Exodus are so important to humanity and to us. They help us address some of the biggest questions in life. Like, where are you, God? Don't you see where I am and what I'm going through? Will you do anything? See, when we find ourselves in Philadelphia, as we tend to think that God is indifferent to our circumstances or he's powerless to do anything or, or both. And so what we do is we, we turn from him, and what do we usually do? We try to take matters into our own hands. And how does that usually end up? Usually not all that good. What our passage will show us is that God never forgets his promises to his people, though his timing is not like our timing, God always works, often behind the scenes, to bring about his glorious purposes. This is something we all need to know and to be reminded of, myself included. Because God is at work in all of our circumstances, we must persevere with hope. So we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at it under three headings. The history, the harm, and the hope. The history, the harm, and the hope. But first, before we begin, uh, if you're from Philly, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I know you guys got like the world's greatest cheesesteak sandwiches, but the playwright chose Philly, not Cincy or San Fran. So there we go. Disclaimer done. First, the history. What we see in these opening verses of Exodus is this, that, that as world history unfolds, God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled. Fruitful and multiply. I will make you a great nation. Look at Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. When Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, then Joseph died. Uh, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if you're here today, you maybe just don't know much about the Bible. Perhaps you didn't read the book of Genesis before we uh, got here this morning. Um, then all of these names are just kind of like names of people who went to a different land and they died, but somehow like their offspring like, were really fruitful and multiplied. But if you've seen how the history is unfolding from Genesis, there's a few key points that are 
really interesting. See, God's promise to Abraham is coming about. We see that right here. And that's what, that's what Moses wants us to see in these opening verses. These are Moses' words he's penned. See, God sought one man out of all the world uh, to begin a relationship with, to create the family of God on earth. That man's name is Abraham. Abraham was old. His wife was barren. And he said, guess what, though, Abraham? I'm, I'm going to make your offspring great and numerous. Um, your name will be great. I will give you a promised land. And through your people, all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God would later change Jacob's name to Israel, where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons. One was Joseph. Joseph's brothers weren't all that nice. They sold him into slavery. Joseph ends up in Egypt. But guess what? Joseph, by God's grace and providence, rose to become Pharaoh's right-hand man. And when there was a famine around the globe, Joseph's brothers and fathers came to Egypt. And lo and behold, the brother that they mistreated brought them blessing. And Joseph said, this was God's purposes. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. At first, though, Jacob was afraid to travel to Egypt. But here's what God spoke to him at the end of Genesis in chapter 46. Listen. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. And then listen. I myself will go with you to Egypt. And I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Do you see how God is condescending to Jacob? Jacob is in a Philadelphia of a day. He's terrified to make this journey. And God says, don't be afraid. I myself will be with you. My friends, if you belong to God, know this. You need not be afraid in your Philadelphia moments. God is with you. You might not know how or where. You might, not even, you might even feel as if he's abandoned you, but he never will. And so in the opening chapter of Exodus, we read that God's promise to Abraham and Jacob is coming true. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Then in verse 8, we read these ominous words. Look. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, one who did not know Joseph. Dun, dun, dun. Which leads us to our second point, the harm. And the big idea here is this, note takers. Um, Though harm may come our way, God rules the day. Though harm may come our way, God rules the day. Before we look at the harm, let's look at the fear of Pharaoh that caused him to, that worked in him to cause harm. We see it in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 10. Now there there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his, his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. My friends, Pharaoh did not know God. Therefore, instead of seeking to bless God and his people, he, he fears for himself. And, and, and isn't this just a pattern we see in the world in which we live? Every generation uh, we see around the world faithless dictators who shrewdly deal with any perceived threat. We've seen it in the last hundred years. Stalin murdered literally millions of his own people out of fear that they might rise up and overthrow him. So too Mao Zedong and more recently Kim Jong-un of North Korea. But I know our temptation is to say, yeah, those guys are evil. I would never do that. But don't be so quick to think that. I mean, if you rose to power in a country like that, don't be so quick to think that you wouldn't live out of fear and seek to harm anyone who threatens you. We see it in our democracy in America. Political leaders lie and cheat and they break campaign finance laws all so they can remain in power. My friends, the human heart, check this out, unless God grips the human heart... The human heart lives in fear that others will take away what is ours. So Pharaoh is an example writ large of how those who have no fear of God live. So Pharaoh makes a plan to harm the prosperous people of God. The first harm Pharaoh seeks to afflict upon them is ruthless slavery. Look at verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Did you see what happened despite the harm inflicted by Pharaoh? Did you pick up on that? Look at verse 12. It's key. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Despite the evil intentions of the enemies of God, God's people multiplied. Now, but let's be real here. Imagine you were an Israelite at this very time. Talk about being in a Philadelphia. You were once free, but now others rule over you ruthlessly. Wouldn't in this moment, wouldn't you feel as if God was distant and disinterested in you? And yet, what do we see? God is at work behind the scenes. What Pharaoh meant for harm, God has meant for good. At the time when God's people should be dropping like flies, instead they're, they're being fruitful and they multiply. So plan A isn't working. So Pharaoh escalates his harm. What does he do? Well, he enacts a population control scheme. Look at uh, verses 15 through 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
uh, one of whom was Shifra and the other was Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, I was wondering what that looked like, a birth stool in those days. Anyway, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, "Um, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong and because the midwives feared God he gave them families in the second act to bring harm to the Israelites Pharaoh decrees to the Hebrew midwives to kill any male baby as it comes out of the womb cover its mouth don't let it breathe make sure it dies Pharaoh saw this as a means of eliminating the nation of Israel within one generation. How so? Well, kill all the boys and all the women, as they, girls as they grow up, will have no Hebrew men to marry. The girls will grow and become slave wives of Egyptian men. And guess what? Within one generation, there would be no more Israelites. But Pharaoh's plan backfired. Why? The midwives are more afraid of God than they are of Pharaoh. They exhibited what all of us should exhibit, more concern for God and his ways than the wishes of those who oppose him. The midwives exhibit faith in God and a desire to honor God no matter the cost. And they're pretty quick-witted, too. So Pharaoh brings them back and asks, what the heck's going on? And the midwives, they deceive Pharaoh, right? But they, they say, you should see those Hebrew women. I mean, they give birth so fast, they're like champs. You know, I, you know we're barely putting our sandals on, and, and the babies are already here, right? <laughs> and so, once again, we read in verse 20, the people multiplied and grew strong. You see the point that, we're, that God is trying to show us through this text? God's enemy turns up the heat, but God's plans and purposes prevail. And we see in verse 21 that, that the faithful are blessed. God gave the midwives families of their own. We don't know the circumstances, but I guess they didn't have families of their own. He gave them to them. So Pharaoh's plan of population control backfires. So once again, he escalates the harm. And now he goes with outright genocide. We see it. In the verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. What an atrocious, evil decree. If the midwives cannot control the population, then my own people will. They'll take all the baby boys that they hear screaming and they're going to throw them into the Nile River. Pharaoh did not know God. He did not fear God. Instead, he feared for himself, and his fear drove him to harm the people of God. Now, once again, try to place yourself in their shoes at that time as an Israelite. They had seen God multiply their numbers despite Pharaoh's harm, 
But now, this last decree, decree of Pharaoh, it seems right, right? It seems like it has no earthly fix. Like, there's nothing the midwives or any other Hebrew could do to, to, to skirt around this. If there's, a, if there's a Hebrew baby boy in the streets, it needs to die. There's nothing they can do. Imagine the despair. Imagine the helplessness. Where are you, God? We are in a severe Philadelphia of a day, and do you not care? Some of you have gone through times like that. What we need to see is that God does care. The next part of the story tells us emphatically that he does care. He is listening, and he's going to send a Savior. But even then, he's not going to be what you hoped for. Now let's turn to the hope. We see the hope in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We see it burst on the scenes. But it doesn't come exactly how Israel would have liked it. It's an infant that holds the key to Israel's salvation. It's going to be two more generations. It's going to be 80 years before Moses returns to Egypt and declares to Pharaoh, let God's people go. For now... Salvation comes in the form of a baby. And what God wants us to see in this passage is his powerful providence over all creation. Now, what is providence? I know it's, it's a city in Rhode Island, but it's more than that. The textbook answer to, to that comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Perhaps you've memorized it. Uh, here was, here's what it says. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. All right, now what does that really mean? Okay. Uh, It means that though you and I, human beings, were able to, to freely think and do whatever we may choose to do, God actually powerfully works in and through and by and under and around all of our actions to bring about his good and glorious end. I mean, we don't have minds to even begin to comprehend that, but that is who God is and what he does. God is a God of providence. He can even take the sinful actions of Pharaoh and work it for his good. As Paul writes in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. That's God's providence. And we see it here in this passage. Pharaoh may seek to kill all the Hebrew babies, but God even uses his evil actions to bring about his good. Look, let's read. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his, his, as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could no long, hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister 
said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she, he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Do you see all the ways in which God's providence is on display here? I mean, first we read that Moses is born a Levite. Levites were given the honor and the distinction to, among God's people to be the, the priest who served in the tabernacles and the temples. Moses was, uh, was the priest of the Old Testament par excellence. Moses was the one who went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments for the people of God. And, um, but here's the deal. If Moses had not been born a Levite, he never could have done that. He never could have had that role of serving God's people in that way. So it's no accident he was born a Levite. It was God's providential care upon his life in this world. Second, Moses' mother trusts in God's providence by placing her child in a basket, in a river. She was trusting in God's providence for the life of her child. Imagine the courage and faith that must take. My friends, we must learn to trust in God's providence. Third, look at Pharaoh's, how Pharaoh's daughter was born. She was born with a compassionate heart. She has great love for this child that she found. It's no accident she was born that way. She opened up the, the, the little basket. She saw a child, and the baby was crying. And it says in the text that she took pity on him. She knew it was a Hebrew baby. She said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. If she had pity, if she had had her father's cruelty, Moses would have been abandoned on the spot. But God, in his providence, gave Pharaoh's daughter a beautiful heart. Fourth, we see that Moses, thankfully, wasn't the firstborn in the family. He had an older sister, right? Did you pick up on that? Later, we learn that her name is Miriam. But if God hadn't providentially placed this older sister in Moses' life, we wouldn't be reading this story. <laughs> she watched the basket from a distance. She witnessed Pharaoh's daughter pitying the baby. And then look, what she says is absolutely brilliant. Look at it, verse 7. Then his sister, Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, um, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Wink, wink. It's as if Pharaoh's daughter hadn't yet figured out what to do. So Miriam plants this seed. Shall I go and get someone to nurse this baby for you? Then the wheels start turning inside of the uh, Pharaoh's daughter's head. Well, if I, if I could get someone to wet nurse this baby for me, I, I could have this child as my own. I could, I could adopt this child. Without Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter likely would not have seen this option. It's the providence of God. Fifth, who is it that ends up nursing the child? This is just amazing. Moses' actual mother. Did you pick up on that? Like, like, Miriam takes and goes and gets Moses' mother and brings so Moses' mother can nurse this little 
baby. Talk about providential, like turn of events, right? And Moses' mother even draws a paycheck. It's change. You see that? She gets paid for it. Holy cow. I think God has a little sense of humor. Lastly, when the child grew older, he was brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and she adopted him as her own. We don't know. Pharaoh most likely had lots and lots of daughters because he had lots of wives. Perhaps this one was barren and was longing for a child. We don't know those circumstances. But she adopted Moses as her very own. Now, check this out. Listen, the, the daughter of Pharaoh adopts as her son the one who's going to grow up to strive against Pharaoh's son or maybe grandson later in life. How ironic. The evil designs of Pharaoh are unwittingly thwarted by Pharaoh's own daughter. Isn't the providence of God astounding? God works through the ordinary circumstances of our lives in both the good and the bad to bring about his glorious purposes. Do you see this in the story? More importantly, do you see this in your life? Does this story help you to have eyes to see God's providential hand upon you and your circumstances? You know, we suffer through the fact that God gave us some difficult teacher or boss and and all we want to do is to get moved into another class or get transferred to another department but maybe it's all really part of God's design for your life a chance for you to trust in God in your circumstances a chance for you to lift your head out of despair and seek to honor God wherever you are so We've seen in the opening words of the book of Exodus that God is at work in all of our circumstances. And because of this, we must persevere with hope. But maybe you're here this morning, you don't quite buy all that faith in God stuff. I totally get it. I was there myself. I I was 29 years old when uh, I came to uh, believe in God and trust in Christ. So, you know, maybe you, you... think like I used to think, asking good questions, you know, how can a God exist when there's so much suffering in this world, you know, I used to get really hung up on that, I don't think that the answers are easy, but here's what I've come to realize, the answer to the question, how can a loving, powerful God exist when there's so much suffering in the world, listen, the answer is not a proof text, right, you know, God doesn't give us an explanation to, to wrap our heads around, He gives us something better. He gives us a person to wrap our hearts around. Moses, uh, this sermon is titled, The Savior is Born, and Moses was born a savior to God's people to rescue them from the evil of Egypt, to deliver them from their endless Philadelphia. But truly, Moses, what points us to another savior who was born? God's divine son, Jesus, who, like Moses, do you recall, he's born in a, as a vulnerable baby in a hostile world. You remember, like, like, like Moses, there was a king in Jesus' day who gave an edict to kill all of the Hebrew boys two years old or under. 
And you know what Joseph and Mary had to do? They fled with Jesus. Remember where they went? Yeah, Egypt, of all places. God, in his providence, protected the divine son until it was time for the Son of God to go to the cross. Talk about a Philadelphia of a day. Jesus, innocent and pure, wrongly accused, mocked, beaten, stripped naked, brutally crucified on a cross for you. Listen, you know, while most of us try with all of our energy to get ourselves out of this Philadelphia of a world, God in all of his love, Jesus came into our Philadelphia of a world. My friends, God doesn't give us a, a rational argument. He gives us a loving person to help us understand that though this world is full of brokenness and sorrow, God is not powerless. He exists and he's done something about it. Your answer isn't an argument, it's a person. The Son of God. You see, I mean, if God stood at a distance, you'd be right to question his power or his goodness, even his existence. But God came down. God entered into the brokenness of our world. God sent his own son into our Philadelphia. Jesus left his throne of glory in heaven to enter our broken world that he may rescue us. And rescue us not not from a bad hair day or a dead battery or a delayed plane flight. He, He rescues us from our sin. Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter 1. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. And so, if you look towards Christ in faith and you trust in Christ, that he died for you, know also this, that he is raised for you. He is with you. He walks with you. Even in your deepest days of Philadelphia's, God's promise to Jacob, do not be afraid, I will be with you, is a promise for you today. God has not changed in how he relates to his children. If you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. The spirit of Christ dwells in you richly. Which means you're not alone in your suffering and sorrow. God is present with you. He's grieving with you. He's crying with you. He is pressing faith into you. He is driving sin out of you. He is planting a new song in your heart. He's causing praise to come from your lips. And he's giving you that peace that passes all understanding. So may this truth drive our lives here on earth. Until Christ returns or calls us home, may we rejoice in God's providential care. May we be fruitful and multiply. May we fear God and be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that have been kept pure and good for us. Because we need to hear from you. We, we doubt you at times. 
Thank you that you've shown us that you are the God who works behind the scenes. Even in our deepest, darkest days, you have pledged to work out all things for our good. Jesus, you are a worthy Savior. You're worthy of our praise and thanks. Thank you for entering into our world so that we may be changed in the moment and given this hope of the age to come. Holy Spirit, may you press these truths deep into our lives that we may never forget them and always live by them, we pray. Amen.